Welcome to Backstage at the Enharmonic. I'm your host, Sean J. Kennedy. Today's guest is Nitsan Heros, principal trombonist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. This past winter, I had the opportunity to perform with Nitsan and the Philadelphia Boys Choir for their holiday concert series. I had such a great time chatting with him backstage that I invited him to be on the podcast. Hello, Nitsan. Are you there? I'm there, Sean. How are you? I'm great. So thanks for taking some time. Uh, I know your schedule is jam-packed uh, with various obligations, so I really appreciate you taking some time to uh, be on the podcast today. Of course. My pleasure. What is your earliest memory of music as a child? So, yes, the answer to this would, I guess, have to begin with my mother, who is a musician. She's a harp player. And being a harp player, uh, I'm sure um, that I was surrounded with uh, beautiful sounds of the harp um, when I was still in her belly, actually. So um, while I cannot say that I remember those sounds exactly, I know they were um, everywhere, and I was born into this uh wonderful um, musical family. My mother has uh, six more brothers and and sisters, and they all play an instrument. So I was uh, surrounded with music from uh, early on. I think uh, I can certainly remember um, later on, you know, when I was around maybe uh, six or seven, hearing um uh my uncle and my mother play and uh and also my uncle used to be the uh, principal cellist with the Israel Philharmonic so they used to play a lot together and my mother would play a lot with um a flute player and so the combination of flute and harp was um also one of my earliest memories that I can actually go back to in my mind is your mother a professional musician or does she do it as a uh, hobby Yes, my mother is a professional musician. She's a chamber um, musician, soloist, and a teacher. And she's been doing that for many years. She's 72 years old now, and she's been doing it. We're actually going to give a recital uh, sometime in May here in the U.S. So um, she's coming here to visit, and we're going to take the opportunity and play together. So this leads right to my next question. I was going to say, what drew you to the um, to the trombone? And um, it's interesting to me because all the instruments you mentioned that were an early influence are treble, a lot of treble clef high sounding instruments. What drew you to the trombone? Well, believe it or not, what drew me to the trombone was a simple photo. Or maybe it wasn't that simple, but it was a great, beautiful photo of a new shiny trombone. Um, I was at a house of friends, and um, there were there were musicians as well. And there was a book there, uh, a brochure rather, that had uh, photos of 
new brass instruments. And I remember flipping through the pages, and when I looked at the trombone, I immediately fell in love, and I pointed at this <laughs> instrument, and I showed it to my mother. I said, Mom, this is what I want to play. And she looked at me, and she said, Oh, really? Is that so? Are you sure? I said, Yes, that's what I want to play. So she went and asked a few teachers, and she had connections, of course, and uh, she found a trombone teacher who was willing to, to teach a nine-year-old boy who was kind of short and small in size. And uh, while other teachers suggested I started with another instrument, like the clarinet perhaps, maybe piano, um, I insisted on wanting to only play the trombone, and we eventually found a teacher. His name is Eli. Eliezer Maharoni, and he was my teacher. That's how I started. Wow. <laughs> so did you play in school groups, or was it just private lessons, like outside of school? It was private lessons. Um, back in the day when I lived in Israel, uh, we didn't really have school bands uh, like like we do here in the U.S., uh, it's a wonderful thing here, but I didn't have anything like that. When I was slightly older, maybe 12, uh, I joined uh, a youth band, uh, Jerusalem Youth Band, and there I started to uh, to play with a bigger group. But um, earlier than that, I basically took private lessons with Ellie, and that's that. How did you navigate like sixth and seventh position? You said you were a short kid, so... Uh, did you have to do anything special, like turn to the side to reach those extensions? This is a, a very good question, Sean. Uh, and I think the simple answer is I simply had to wait until my arm was long enough to actually reach some <laughs> okay. of the lower positions. So uh, with all seriousness, I just simply uh, learned to play the horn and uh, and learned to play the notes that I was able to reach. Um, of course, okay. my teacher or uh, found um, uh, a smaller size trombone for me, a student-sized trombone. So it was slightly uh, smaller in size than than, than a regular uh, tenor. Uh, but yeah, I definitely remember not being able to reach the sixth and seventh position. And, and he sh- showed me some tricks, like you said, extending the arm and moving to the side a little bit just to gain another inch or something. And so slowly I managed to reach the sixth position and then later on the seventh. And and uh, so the notes that were missing were finally uh, added to the uh, <laughs> to the range. That's great. Just perseverance won the day. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So you mentioned you were in a youth band and you took the private lessons. Um, was that regular concert band, like wind band repertoire? It was like a wind band repertoire, like yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your it seems like your early training was classical or legit, as some people say. Did you ever get into the jazz stuff when you were young, or more commercial music? I never got into it. I mean, I was surrounded with various styles of music because both my parents were. My mother is a professional musician, but my father. Uh, is a music lover, and there was a lot of music in the house. Um, one of the earlier memories I have actually are um, is a is a, a recording of Al Hurt, um, mm. jazz Dixieland uh, trumpet player. Um, he was giant in in the day, and the, the recording I remember is is called Honey in the Horn. And that sound of the trumpet also stuck in my mind and I think had a lot of influence 
later on when I started to play the trombone to actually understand the the um, uh, the, the sound, the brass sound, what is a good uh, tone that you can and should produce on your instrument. So I heard some of the um, some of this jazz at home um, and classical, all, all kinds of styles I heard all around. Um, I never really dove into uh, jazz, into playing jazz late, until later on in my life, but... Um, yeah, my teacher, Eli Aroni, uh, my first teacher, and then my second teacher, Mitchell Ross, uh, were both classical players, uh, both interested also in in, uh, in, in in jazz music here and there, but they were legit players. They both played with the Jerusalem Symphony, so I definitely had a lot of uh, classical background. Hmm. So it sounds like from your upbringing um, that having a path in music was not out of the question, almost a given, it seems like, from your background. So did you think when you were a teenager, middle school, high school age, that, you know, you were going to become a professional musician, or did you have other interests, maybe, before you decided on that? It's, a, again, a very good question, and uh, usually my answer is that I was not completely sure that this is what I wanted to do. I think it was uh, around maybe age 17, 18, uh, I started to actually join my mother on some of her recitals. She um, she and I would, would play together. Um, I think it started with my desire to have a, a private accompanist. <laughs> I was right. lucky enough. My mother played not only the harp, but she, she's also a good piano player. And so... Very early on, when I started to work on um, on music that had accompaniment, solo pieces, sonatas, and this and that, I would run over to her after maybe five minutes of looking at the at the piece that I was playing, and I would uh, um, approach her and say, "Mom, can can you accompany me?" <laughs> uh, eventually, she started to say, "Well, why don't you uh, practice this a little bit before um, you ask me to accompany you? And when you're ready, I will." And uh, but that that definitely became something that um, that we did a lot. Um, we would play together first piano and trombone, and then my mother suggested to play some things on the harp, and that uh, started the um, what what later became a pretty significant part of my um, professional uh, musical um, life. You know, is the harp and trombone duo. That we had, um, we uh, actually commissioned a bunch of pieces for the uh, duo. It's a very unusual duo. But to go back to your original question, um, we played this and that together. We did we did some Baroque music, Vivaldi, Marcello, Galliard. We did some French repertoire, some Debussy and Ravel songs that were written for. For voice and piano, we would do on the harp with a trombone. Worked out really, really well. And when joining my mother on a couple of her recitals, playing, she called it. She said, "I have a guest player here with me," and she would introduce me, and we would play uh, a piece or two. And as this was getting more and more uh, something we would do, she started to actually pay me for these appearances. She said, I'm going to pay you because, you know, I'm getting paid for these recitals and you you take 
bigger and bigger part of these recitals, so I'm actually going to pay you. And when that started happening, I think then something clicked in my head, and I thought, wait a minute, mm -hmm. I'm actually making some money here playing music. <laughs> so this is actually kind of cool. And, you know, for a teenager to have this experience, um, I think had some influence on me. I think I can also add that um, living in Israel, I was um, forced to join the Israeli army and serve mm -hmm. for three years. And thanks to my dad, um, he pushed me to go towards music in the army and not to do a legitimate army service, which I thought I wanted to do, actually. Um, mm -hmm. my, my dad had the experience of fighting in a couple of wars, and he knew that it wasn't just a, you know, a, a teenager game joining the army. So he put a lot of pressure on me to investigate and, and try to get into a, a military band, which does exist in Israel. And um, thanks to that, uh, reluctantly, I have to say, I, I took a couple of auditions and I, I won um, my position in, in, uh, in the Army Band. And I believe that thanks to that, I was able to continue to play my instrument, my trombone, and also was uh, introduced to the euphonium, which is another instrument I play, very similar to the trombone, just with valves like a small tuba. And um, I would um, uh, I was able to continue to um, pursue music during my three years of army service, and continuing after that was just a very uh, obvious, almost smooth path. I won a job with an orchestra, an Israel opera orchestra, almost uh, immediately after being released from the army. And so the path was paved already. So do you still play any valved instruments? Uh, I play the euphonium not very often, but I'm capable uh, mm -hmm. of playing the euphonium, uh, as well as the bass trumpet. And these two instruments are used here and there in the uh, classical uh, orchestral repertoire, pieces like the Planets, for instance, by Holst, <clears throat> sorry, um, uses euphonium. The very famous piece by Igor Stravinsky, The Ride of Spring, uses bass trumpet. So um, I am able to play these instruments. I don't play them very often, but uh, but I'm capable of of playing the instruments, yes. So a lot of my guests, they reflect on their early part of their career. And one thing I, that most of my guests have in common is when they're young, most of them again, if there was some trepidation or they weren't sure if music was the right choice or the arts field. And many of them have had a moment where they were in the professional world and it finally hit them that, yes, I've made the right decision. This is where I should be. And I'm finally on the road to success, as it were. Uh, do you have any moment or moments like that early in your career where you stepped back and reflected on the decisions you made and said, yes, I made the right decision? Yes, I think um, while my path, as I said, was kind of paid, paved for me almost uh, with the help and the, the, the push of my parents, um, I still um, had other um, hobbies and things that I really liked to do. Um, and, uh, and I think up until my early 20s, I wasn't quite sure that this is what I really wanted to do when I grow up kind of thing. 
Um, but uh, I won a, a pretty prestigious competition in Israel, and that allowed me to come here to the U.S. Uh, with the money that they gave me. I, I bought a plane ticket, and I came here, and I, I auditioned for a few schools, and the decision was at the end to go to Juilliard. And shortly after I got into the Juilliard School, within six months, I won a job with the New York Philharmonic as <laughs> assistant principal trombone. And I really do think that winning that job, and incidentally, I will say that I had absolutely no intention when I came to the U.S. to um, get a job here. I came here because I wanted to study in an American college with an American teacher, I knew uh, that uh, the brass here is uh, uh, legendary, and there are some phenomenal brass players here, and I wanted to come and study here, maybe get a degree, and then go back to Israel. And I had absolutely no uh, no, no uh, intention, and, uh, and when I heard about this audition coming up with the New York Philharmonic, I, I couldn't even dream that I would get it. But when that happened, and I took this audition after about six months in the U.S., and I won it, I think that's when I thought to myself, oh, goodness, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. And, uh, of course, uh, I was pretty excited about it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and continued with that path ever since. <laughs> Well, that is certainly a pivotal moment in one's musical history, so <laughs> that's a great example. I was very fortunate to be uh, at the right place at the right time, have the right teacher here. Joe Alessi pushed me uh, a lot during those six months, and it was really just being at the right place at the right time and, and just doing it. Mm-hmm. And besides you being a killer player, uh, I had a chance to perform with you once in that little series we did with the boys' choir. Um, one thing that blew me away, besides your beautiful tone and all of that stuff, was your humility. Um, and I think that's important that so many musicians that I meet that are successful, they don't have big egos. In my experience, the, the people that stay in the business the longest and are the most successful, um, just they push the ego aside and they're all about the music. Yeah, that is... Um... A really wonderful point to uh, to bring up, not because I want to talk about my own humility. Uh, I'm humbled <laughs> that you're mentioning this, but uh, I, this is definitely something I try to talk about in master classes and to my private students, because I do think that this is so important for the human connection that we all have uh, in any business, but certainly in the music business. When you sit on stage and you play... The ensemble can be as small as two people playing together, uh, all the way to a big orchestra, um, uh, sometimes with choir, you know, 100, 200 players and singers together. You have to have a certain sense of, of uh, teamwork that comes with, with this humility that you're talking about. Of course, that doesn't mean that uh, everywhere all the musicians you can find uh, are all going to be humble. Not all of them are, but I think uh, I think it makes life a lot more pleasant when you are humble and when you um, treat your your colleagues and your peers um, with respect. It's just um, life is just happier that way, you know. 
Um, I also have to tell a quick story here that, first of all, when uh, when I heard about this, uh, this audition with New York Philharmonic, which is the first job I had here in the U.S., as I said earlier, I had absolutely no uh, intention and I, I, I couldn't even dream that I'm good enough to get this job. Um, when I prepared for this job, I, I worked really, really hard playing a number of hours every day and getting myself ready for this, I did not go with the idea that I am going to win this job. I simply went with the, with the hope um, that I will play the best I possibly can. And I think that helped me to get through the difficult uh, stages of, of this audition, you know, which had three rounds and, and all of that. It's stressful enough, but if you actually, if you have the, uh, you know, the pride, the chutzpah or pride to think that this job is yours, you're putting so much pressure on yourself that you may actually not get the job, even if you're really, really great. Uh, mm -hmm. I took that part out of the equation. I put I took that part out of um you know my my uh my preparation. I just wanted to play the best I I could. And why am I telling this story? After I won the job, I felt extremely lucky and very happy. Uh I started to play with the New York Philharmonic and there was uh a, a job opening there for trumpet, fourth trumpet, I believe. Some of my friends and peers from the Juilliard School <laughs> found it necessary to come to me and uh, and tell me that they are going to win that job. <laughs> and I just thought to myself that it wasn't the right kind of attitude. You know, while I think you need to believe in yourself, and at some point in the audition, perhaps when you get to the final round, uh, you have to start playing like you want the job. You really have to. Um, but my focus was not towards being a winner, rather towards playing the absolute best I could. And when these people came to me and said, oh, this job is mine, it's got my name on it, I thought to myself, well, you know what? I think this is the wrong attitude. Um, and and I think that's where the humility also gets in the picture. I mean, you need to know what you're worth, but I think to stay humble uh, is is a good thing. It helped me in life. It helped me to be popular amongst my peers, amongst my, amongst my my colleagues, and it just makes life a happier place to be in. Yeah, very well said. You know, and like you said, it's not every musician. Most musicians that people want to continue working with have that humility about them and not uh, a big ego. Like they deserve something. So uh, right. that's great. That was a great answer. So if you could relive one performance, if possible, was there one performance that you look back on your career thus far and said, man, that was incredible. I wish I could do that one one more time. Do you have one? Uh, let me think about it. That's a tough one. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm so critical with myself. I'm such a perfectionist that um, there are only a handful of performance i i think that i truly 
thought were um, from beginning to end so spectacular that I would love to uh, to repeat them. And you'd think that I would remember those. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Uh, my first season with the Philadelphia Orchestra in uh, 1995. Um, was a was a heavy season. We played a lot of uh, fantastic repertoire, and I was lucky enough, fortunate enough, to play um, Mahler's Third Symphony with James Levine. Hmm. Um, that was a a pretty spectacular experience, and I would love to um, to have that that opportunity again. I'm I'm lucky enough to get to play it again this coming May. We played here with with the Philadelphia Orchestra and Yannick Nezetsigan, our music director. So I'm sure that will be a, sp- a splendid experience um, as well. I'm very much looking mm-hmm. forward to that. Um, I will I will add that the the biggest uh, trombone solo within um, classical orchestral music is is that. Mahler Third Symphony. It's got a huge trombone solo in the first movement. So I, I definitely remember that as one um, phenomenally good experience. And, and I wish I could uh, relive that. Outstanding. And I'm sure many of the listeners uh, to this interview are going to be checking you out with the Philly Orchestra coming up. So we look forward I to that so. performance as well. Yes, yes. So here's another good one. Um, is there a favorite venue that you've played in somewhere around the world that you thought was a really cool place to play? Well, I absolutely love Carnegie Hall. And I'm a very fortunate uh, musician because we we get to perform in Carnegie um, maybe five or six times every year. Mm. And uh, every time we return to that ven- venue, um, it is again a reminder of how phenomenal the hall is and um and how amazing it is to play on that stage. There's a reason why it's got the reputation and the name that it's got. Of course, of course. And thank goodness for uh, Isaac Stern for uh, leading the charge to save that <laughs> beautiful Absolutely, building. Absolutely, yes. All right, is there a piece of music that you never get tired of playing? Like when you see it up on the bulletin board, like, oh, this is for next season, you're like, yes, I can't wait to play that piece again. <laughs> okay, uh, that's a hard one, too, because uh, I have uh, a few of those really favorite How about pieces. top three? Could you give me top three? Top three. Well, I love The Ride of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. Absolutely love this piece of music. I love uh, the My Reckless Mandarin by Bartok. We don't get to play that very often, so whenever I see that, I get extremely excited. I guess for the third piece, I will say either Mahler's Second Symphony or, of course, Mahler's Third Symphony. So I started this podcast a little less than a year ago. And I've gotten a little bit of a following. It's on iTunes, and I have it on my website. And uh, I told a bunch of my trombone friends that I was going to be interviewing you, and they got very excited. 
uh, I think the trombone world is a very close-knit world. And they all started sending me messages with questions for you. So if you wouldn't mind, I have a few listener questions that I'd like to uh, throw at you. Is that cool? Okay, yes, absolutely. Okay. The first one comes from a Philadelphia trombonist. His name is Glenn DeGeorge, incredible musician. And he writes, are there any East Coast versus West Coast orchestra scenes as there are in the jazz and hip-hop world? And is there a difference in approach from East Coast to West Coast or philosophy? Very good question. Um, I think as as our world is uh, shrinking in a way, thanks to the Internet, um, and we all know about each other, um, and you've got uh, players from all over the world everywhere in the U.S. and in Europe and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think there, you can say in general that what used to perhaps be, you know, the European style and the American style and this and that is, uh, at least in the classical uh, world, is is um, is less and less. Um, uh, less and less the case, I would say. Um, you could you could still hear um, woodwind players uh, sounding slightly different in Europe than they, than they do in in the U.S. Um, Etc. But uh, the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast, having played both in the East Coast and the West Coast in top orchestras, I can say that there's not much of a difference really. Um, there's a lot of circulation between players, and uh, I, I personally got to play with a, a LA Phil, and so they were getting musicians from the East Coast, from the Met, from Philadelphia, from Dallas, uh, and so uh, orchestras um, all over the country are kind of a mishmash of musicians from both the East and the West Coast, and, and I think the the, the style is pretty similar i would say great all right next listener question this is from another trombone player lewis setzer from out in the midwest originally from philly it says he's interested to know uh with someone who's been as a professional as long as you are uh if you get to play much new repertoire with the orchestra and if you still get excited when the standards from like brahms tchaikovsky dvorak come around every year Yes, so I get to play uh, contemporary music. As a matter of fact, uh, just in, as an example, this could be exciting for the uh, brass and trombone community out there. We are about to play uh, the next season a concerto for low brass, so three trombones and tuba by Jennifer Higdon. She's actually mm -hmm. uh, writing this piece. It's going to be co-commissioned by the Chicago Symphony, Philadelphia Orchestra, and I believe Baltimore Symphony. So the uh, low brass sections of the Chicago Symphony, then Philadelphia, and then Baltimore will perform this absolutely new piece. I have no idea what it's going to sound like. Jennifer hasn't even started writing it, I believe, or she will very, very soon. Um, so this is just one example. Uh, every now and then um, the orchestra will commission a piece for uh, a certain event or um, etc and we'll we'll get to play something brand new out of the oven uh and so you know that that uh, can end up being sometimes a wonderful experience and sometimes not so much you know depending on 
on the composition, of course. Now to mm-hmm. the second part of the question, yes, I mean, uh, there are definitely um, some pieces that I'm more excited uh, to see coming back. Um, I think uh, in order to please our audiences, we are pretty much forced to repeat certain repertoire, such as, let's say, 1812, uh, Overture mm-hmm. by Tchaikovsky. This happens at least once, if not twice, or three times a year. Um, every summer, we get to play 1812, at least once or twice. Uh, so while it has uh, tremendous uh, brass parts, trombone parts, uh, am I excited to see it? Uh, not so much, honestly. Um, right. <laughs> but but then there are other pieces, uh, as I mentioned before, all the Mahler symphonies, the Tchaikovsky symphonies, uh, the Prokofiev symphonies, the Shostakovich symphonies, Dvorak, uh, you know, Stravinsky, everything that has nice um, brass parts and involves us where we don't have to sit too long and stare at our colleagues while they play the fun parts. Um, all of those pieces, and you trombone players know what I'm talking about. When I see them, I'm happy and excited. <laughs> Excellent. All right, one more listener question. Uh, this is from a trumpet player, of course, Chris Horn. So his question, okay. he had a few, but one of the ones that I really liked, he said, are the auditions at Juilliard different than other music school auditions? Could you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Uh, well, that's interesting. Um, let's see. I auditioned in Juilliard in 1992. So this is quite a few years ago, and honestly, I have not uh, been involved with any auditions at Juilliard. Um, so I don't really know if they run the auditions the same uh, as back then. Uh, I assume so, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I will say that uh, the auditions at Curtis, where I teach, have changed along the years. And now we have, for instance, two rounds of auditions. Uh, we will have one round. Um, uh, only the trombone faculty will listen to the trombone players. And then we have a final round, uh, which is uh, either the same day or the next day, following day. And then we have the entire brass faculty, so the trumpet teacher and French horns teachers and uh, tuba, etc., we're all sitting there listening to the final round with however many players made it to the finals. Um, and that's, uh, that's something rather new, only a couple of years that we've been doing that. Um, so, uh, I again, I'm not really sure what they do in Juilliard, but... Um, with my own uh, my own experience is that uh, when I auditioned there, there was a panel of uh, of uh, faculty judges, maybe four or five of them, and I was pretty close to them physically in a pretty small room with piano and playing uh, what they asked me to play a solo piece and a few excerpts and answer a few questions and. Um, and that's that. Great. And he had one more follow-up question. Uh, mm-hmm. It was related to bass trombone. Is there a good time to move a successful trombone player to bass trombone? And if so, when is that? Good question, too. <laughs> and uh, and not an easy one um, to answer. Um, 
What can I say? I think that um, I never moved any of my students to Beis Ramon. Uh, perhaps there was one or two in the past that I um, suggested that they could uh, uh, try to to play the Beis Ramon and see if they like it. Usually, for me personally, uh, if a student really struggled with a high range of the tenor trombone, but had a solid middle range and low range, um, I would direct them to uh, to the bass trombone. And I think that's probably true to a lot of other trombone teachers. If they have students who have a strong low range um, but struggle with the high notes, uh, most naturally uh, you could uh, direct them to the bass trombone. Um, I think that's probably the best uh, the best advice. I, I, I can uh, tell a quick short story. Um, when I left the New York Philharmonic and moved to Philadelphia, the guy after me, um, Jim Markey, uh, won the job after me and was the associate principal. So uh, after a number of years, uh, there was uh, an opening for bass Ramon at the New York Philharmonic, and Jim decided that rather than staying uh, a tenor trombonist playing as an associate and really uh, not getting too much of a chance to play uh, with a section, he just was getting too much bored, I guess, um, uh, he decided to just go for it. And he picked up the bass trombone and he worked really, really hard for several weeks and uh, switched into the bass trombone and took the audition and won it and became New York Philharmonic's bass trombone player. <laughs> and then later on, he won Boston Symphony bass trombone, which is where he is now. So this was the, a, a personal decision of a player who was just simply kind of tired with his position and decided to take the bass trombone. And uh, he was talented enough that he was able to switch and and he won two phenomenally exciting jobs as a bass trombonist. If I could look at your iPod, uh, what might be some of the top artists or top played songs on your iPod right now? I started recently listening to Harry Nilsson. Um, I was not, I'm embarrassed to say, I was not familiar with this incredible singer and songwriter. Um, so recently I heard a few songs by him and I was uh, very excited to discover <laughs> this singer, um, Harry Nilsson. I have a recording called Anthology by him that has many, many of his favorite songs. And that's, uh, that's something I've been listening, I've been listening to a lot. Also, a new recording that I heard recently uh, somewhere at a bar. I really liked my musician called Thundercat. The album is Drunk. Uh, it's kind of a funk, jazz funk music. Um, what else? Uh, ben Folds 5, Whatever and Ever a Man is the album. It's a great, great album. Uh, I listen to a lot of uh, Latin music um and that includes brazilian music and uh tango i have a phenomenal 
recording um, by Gidon Kramer called Homage a Piazzolla. Uh, so it's a recording of Piazzolla works, and the um, violinist is Gidon Kramer. Uh, so those those come to mind. Outside of the world of music, do you have any other activities or hobbies that you engage in? Uh, I love hiking. I love mountain bikings. Uh, although um, having three children, I'm very busy with that and <laughs> don't have too much time to go mountain biking anymore. I also love scuba diving, uh, bird watching. I love nature. I love the, the outdoors. I love the water. I love water activities like water skiing, scuba diving I mentioned. Um, do you have any final advice or words for young people thinking of getting into uh, the music world in general, not specifically trombone and classical, but just anything with the arts field, getting into that as a profession? I think you need to listen to your gut feeling. Um, that's one thing that's important. Um, if you have a passion for art, for music, um, then you need to go with that passion. Um, so yeah, I think maybe a key word would be diversity. Um, nowadays, uh, a lot of uh, musicians um, are, are pretty much forced to also uh, be uh, able to play not only one style. So, you know, if you only practice orchestral excerpts, I would highly recommend to uh, diver diversify your your uh, your musical taste and uh, your musical experience by listening to a lot of um, other styles of music and 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 trying out um, different styles of music. So don't get stuck with only one style. Uh, I I think I can say that mostly to the classical players, but because um, Having uh, uh, having been a teacher for a few years now, uh, I see a lot of my students. They just focus on one thing. They they focus on uh, doing the same exercises every day and working on just a few excerpts to play them perfectly so they can win a job. Um, I would highly recommend diversity. So listening to jazz and listening to pop and and uh, if you play scales, which you should, you should be also uh, trying some jazz scales, some blues scales, uh, and playing some uh, not just not the same uh, um, triad chords uh, every day, not the same etudes. So just be more diverse with with what you do, and I think that includes. Um, I th I think that's true to all instruments and uh, and in arts in general. So. Listen to your gut feeling. If you have the passion, go with it. But diversity. Try different different things and be very open-minded. Listen listen to a lot of different uh, styles of music and, uh, and enjoy yourself while being humble. Perfect. That's great. <laughs> so, Nitsan, thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast again. Your words of wisdom, I'm sure, will uh, affect many young people out there that are listening. And uh, it was a pleasure to uh, meet you this winter and uh, perform with you, and I hope to do it again in the future. Me too, Sean. I really hope so, and thanks for this. This was exciting. 
Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. You too. Bye. To find out more about Nitsan, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the Curtis Institute of Music, please visit the links below this podcast. Thanks for listening.